This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I'm glad to have you with me here. Today's episode is its one I hope everybody will listen to because it, it digs deep into how we win and how we lose elections. And it confronts the question of how is it that if the majority of Americans say that they believe in the platform of the Democratic Party, why is the Republican Party in so much power and control in this country? How do they win the White House by losing the vote? More Americans are with the liberal end of things than the conservative end of things, and yet the conservatives control the White House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the majority of our governorships. This has bothered me for so long, and then I... I I saw this professor on, I think it was Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, and she came on and she explained that that the mistake that Democrats make all the time is when they run for office, they think the way that they've got to win is to somehow apologize for being a Democrat or for being liberal and to try and win over the more conservative voters. Conservative politicians never try to win over a liberal voter. They never try to sound more liberal so that they can win the election. They win by sticking to their guns, literally and and figuratively. My guest uh, in this podcast uh, today is Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer. She teaches at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. When she was on Lawrence O'Donnell, she explained something that seemed counterintuitive or will seem counterintuitive to most liberals and Democrats, which is more often than not, the Democrat who wins, wins because the Democrat on the ballot, that person, ran to the left, not the right. The more that the Democrat owned the fact that they were a Democrat, they were proud of it, and supported the liberal progressive positions, they win elections. The Democrats who lose elections are the ones who try to sound like Republicans, who are trying to say, vote for me. I'm like the Republicans, but not really. I'm kind of a, uh, you know, a more centrist. And, and they lose because why would you vote for the faux Republican when you can just vote for the real Republican and get the, get the real thing? So this is, this is what she was saying that night on, on Lawrence O'Donnell. And I thought, well, we've got to have her on this, on this, on poc- on this podcast or on Rumble. And uh, so she drove up from, from Virginia uh, um, a few weeks ago, I recorded this with her, and I and I'm telling you that because uh, we talk about how Biden is, you know, ahead in the polls, and and of course in a few short weeks that now is no longer the case. But she was pointing to the fact that if the Democratic power structure keeps pushing us into thinking that we need a centrist or someone in the middle, that otherwise we're going to lose to Trump if we don't go that way. That the opposite of that is true. And the way to fight Trump and beat Trump is to show the country somebody who is the exact opposite of Trump. And uh, it's, it's, but th- th- we're not going to talk about specific, so much specific candidates. She's a political scientist with the emphasis on scientists. She has studied the data. She's looked at so many elections around the country. And she has good news for us here about 2020. And she has some bad news, too. And whichever we, however we choose to take her advice, I think is going to affect the, the outcome of this year's election. 
And that's why I think it's very important to listen to her. Hers is a fresh and new voice. And uh, she's the assistant director of the the Center for Public Policy there at Christopher Newport uh, University in Virginia. And I was very happy that uh, that she came up to be on the show. Near the end, she tells a story of how she first got interested in politics and wanting to be a political scientist. And uh, I, I tried to contain my surprise when she told the story, but I did not know this story before I invited her to come on to come on this episode. And um, but just in in re-listening to it, I I uh, I, I, I do my best to uh, not reveal, I guess, what I was really thinking as she was telling me the story of how she became active and, and an involved citizen. And uh, uh, But I want to tell you that uh, I was thrown a little, and I was happily surprised, but um, also you know grateful to, to hear a story like this. That comes near the end. But in the meantime... Um, You've got a good hour or so here uh, of, uh, I think, a very fascinating dissection of what we're up against. And for everybody who is concerned about how do we beat Trump, can we beat Trump, who's the best person to beat Trump, or best people, there's actually you know, a number of people that the polls all show us that, that can beat Trump. So... Where do we go? How do we deal with this information? It's so fascinating. Uh, so I'm really happy to present it to you right now uh, uh, here on Rumble with, in this case, today, uh, Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer. I'm having to, we all are having to put so much of our faith in the official Democratic Party to be doing the work they need to do and pulling this off in the way that they need to pull it off. And I'm, I'm just so afraid that um, they don't get it. And I want you to reduce my anxiety. Okay. Well, that's no short, that's not, that's a tall order right there. If you want me to make you convinced that the Democratic Party has got it. <laughs> but let me tell you this that sickness inside, that anxiety that you feel, that anxiety, I modeled it. And that anxiety is, is, is really a major, major difference between 2016 and 2020. Because you got to think about the difference between 2016, where everybody was coming off that Obama era high, and they were thinking, dang, you know, eight years of Obama, and we didn't get Medicare for all, and we didn't get immigration reform, and you know, he's just another business Democrat, and now Hillary Clinton, yeah, just another bowl of vanilla ice cream, and what's it all matter? I'm not even going to show up. Heck, they say the election's a shoo-in anyway, because who in the hell would elect Donald Trump to the presidency? Right? Think about how situationally different the conditions are right now here in January of 2020 from this time to 2016. You are unable to sleep. You know, you have a countdown calendar going. Right. Right. How much money have you donated to candidates already? A lot. How many doors have you knocked? Not enough. Yeah. I mean, you are, and you are not alone, right? And and everywhere that I go, I meet people, right? Oh, well, before, before Donald Trump got elected, I was an IT guy, and I never paid attention to politics, right? Or I was- Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's so many people like that, right? Right. And it's just this big, latent, 
muscle that didn't flex in 2016 or 2014 or 2010, and now it is ready to flex. That said, the other side, right? The other side knows what it's doing. The pro-Trump side. Yeah, pro-Trump side. And what we learned in 2018 is that they are they don't cede ground, right? They aren't like the Democrats. Right. Right. In 2018, when I show this voter file analysis that's coming out in the New Republic, it's going to be a it's going to be good news for Democrats. It's going to show a lot of cool, um, inspiring things about how those 40 House seats flipped from, you know, young people and and Gen Z, millennials, Latinos, college educated women, um, black voters showing up and, and doing democracy the right way. But at the end of the day, it's also going to tell Democrats a really disturbing lesson. You want to know what that is? Yeah, what's the lesson? No, I know. I don't want to know. Yes, I want to, I want to know. Okay. No, no, don't, don't tell me. Don't tell you? No, go ahead. Okay. I want to hear it. I just, <laughs> just need to brace myself. All right. You should brace yourself. All right. All right. Because the le- the it, lesson for the Democrats. This is the lesson from 2018. Okay. In every district that I've analyzed thus far, even though proportionally the turnout surge for Democrats is much, much larger because Democrats had low turnout before, still Republicans outvoted Democrats. What do you mean? More, a bigger percent proportionally of registered Republicans showed up to vote in the districts I've analyzed than percent Democrats. So by by per, what do they call that? Parata, per, per, per ratio, there's a larger percentage of the Republicans actually showed up in 2018 than the percentage of overall Democrats. That's right. Even though Democrats improved their really lackluster performances of 2014, they are still underperforming compared to Republicans in terms of turnout. So, wow. Yeah. And, And that was without, I mean, if you think about being a Republican voter in 2018, Donald Trump's the president. You know, you control all of Congress. Life is good. You got the Supreme Court now. Yeah, you've got the Supreme Court. Got everything. Yeah, Brett Kavanaugh gets gets confirmed. It's not like he didn't get confirmed, which would be totally different. He gets confirmed, so that fight's done. You got most of the governorships. You've got almost all. You know, you're feeling good. Yeah. Okay. Right. In in Florida, for example, eighty three percent of registered Republicans voted. Wow. Yeah. They are a committed bunch. They are. And you want to know why they're so committed? I can guess. Go ahead. Because they are in a war. <laughs> they think oh. that they're in a war for the soul of the country. No, they really do believe that. Yes, they do. They believe. I mean, they're told that every day, right? No, they are yeah. told that and they believe it. And um, and they are looking for the head wound constantly. Yes. I mean, their campaign literature reaffirms that, their candidates reaffirm it, their president reaffirms it, their media networks reaffirm it. And, and we, we don't we don't feel like we're in a war, right? It's not a war. No. We um We're like, what are we? I don't like I don't like what he's done. Did you hear what he said today? <laughs> well, some of that, right? I mean, but we're talking about a very small portion of the public that pays attention to that. Like probably one of the biggest mistakes Democrats make is this information assumption that most of voters know what Trump is up to and what he's been doing because most voters don't. They don't follow the news daily. They don't know the details of the Ukraine scandal. They um, didn't read the Mueller report. So, you know, this idea that people are like you and me and they're highly informed and they're following these events, that's a totally wrong 
So the way I just described the average liberal is really not the average American. The average American is not paying that much attention to what Trump did to the EPA today or what he did, you know, name anything. Right, exactly. It's not just that they're not paying that much attention to it. They're basically not paying attention to it at all. And it makes them very subjective or um, sensitive to things like, you know, mantras like um, no collusion, right? No conspiracy, no collusion. Um, These um, framing uh, catchphrases that the Republicans are so good at. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on the other side, there really just isn't a messaging effort like that. Um, Why is that? Because you would think on say, I'll call it my side of the fence here. We have the writers, the artists, the, the, the creators, the people that are creative people, you know, the uh, Hollywood types that, what do we do for a living? We tell stories. Why can't we tell a story for our, our politics, for our, the people that run for office as Democrats? Why does that seem to fail fail over and over again. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because, you know, I've I've been ranting about this on Twitter for the last 18 months or so. And one day a follower said, oh, this is really familiar to Drew Weston's work. Have you ever heard of it? I was like, no, I haven't heard of it. So I looked it up and it's this book called The Political Brain. Very good book. It's making basically these arguments of why Democrats fail to um, do what Republicans do, which is emotive messaging, right? Democrats want to talk about everything analytically. So everything's about brain, right? Um, Policy um, details to the brain, not to the heart. So even when you do talk to something that is emotional, like gun control, it's in an analytical way and not an emotional way. Um, And so I I grabbed this guy's book and I'm reading about that and reading about his frustration as he tried to infiltrate the D-trip and uh, Democratic nexuses to get them to take a more emotive approach. And I realized that he penned the book in 2007. And here we are, you know, 12 years later, and there's there's literally no progress. The reason I wanted to have you on my podcast is because I've, I've followed you since the 2018 election. And I'm assuming you were also writing and thinking about this in 2016. But maybe for the people listening to this, give them a little background in terms of Let's start with 2016. What was your thinking about that as we were leading leading up to uh, the election? So I can't pretend that I had a, a great epiphany that Trump was going to win. Um, I was fresh out of grad school, so I had only defended my PhD in 2015. I'm kind of older in years and young in career. Um, but I was teaching, and I was my first year at CNU and the Watson Center doing polling in Virginia. And, and CNU is Christopher uh, Newport University in Newport news, Virginia. That's correct. Yes. Um, But, you know, I was telling my students, you know, look, Hillary looks good to win. You know, the 538 model um, says that she's going to be fine. She, you know, Trump really can't win unless he flips the Midwest. It's his only path to the um, electoral college. None of the conventional analysts talk about 2016. They talk about Trump winning the Midwest. Well, in Ohio, he won. In Iowa, he won. But in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, he did not even crack like 47% of the vote. He won basically by default. And the reason why was because of high levels of defection of protest balloting, right? And, you know, the reason why that happened is a strategic mistake by the Clinton 
team, not Clinton herself, the team, right? Because the, it's the consultants around the campaign that made make these decisions for candidates. And somebody told her, hey, you know, if you go with someone like Tim Kaine, who's bipartisan and moderate, you can attract these disaffected Republicans to vote for you um, and, you know, increase the Senate uh, capabilities of picking up Senate seats, right? And they totally just screwed up because the there was a movement, a real emotional movement for change, and they basically shit on it, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, I don't blame the disaffected voters. You know, right. I want to make that real clear in the book. I don't, I want, I talk about the campaign made no effort to bring these people back into the field. Um, what they should have done is picked a balanced running mate for her, somebody who um, was progressive, who uh, acknowledged the contribution or the ideological, um, you know, preferences of these millennial and Gen Z co coalition. And uh, there were many options for her to consider in that, in that um, you know, realm. And then beyond that, too, and this is really the most pertinent thing for 2020, is that with that ticket, choice of Kane, a, a strategy was solidified too. That was the, you know, I'm going to appeal to independence with this one type of independent in mind, moderate independents who are fiscally conservative, right? Um, and I'm not going to focus enough on Dem coalition voters, African Americans, Latinos, young people, Gen Z, getting those people enthusiastic to vote. And so when the campaign, the campaign focused its resources disproportionately on, you know, those persuasion voters, and I show in my book, like she got whopped on independence all the way across in every swing state. I mean, literally, not only did it fail to um, bring in these um, progressive voters, these Sanders voters that she des desperately needed, it failed to motivate African Americans to the polls so that half the Obama coalition was missing, right? And, um, you know, ultimately, it was, you know, an unforced era. Uh, if she had just brought somebody into the ticket to to you know um, emphasize that party unity and to bring in like the the big tent of the party she'd probably be sitting in the white house right now right instead she went for the mayonnaise yes she went for a tim kane and let's not say anything to upset anybody let's hope some republicans will come with us and let's not go to wisconsin yeah. Or Michigan. And you know what? It, it failed miserably. Now, in terms of the campaign resources in the Midwest, here's the thing. And I say this in the book as well. You know, the polling in the Midwest was so uncompetitive. I mean, it turns out the polling was telling us the whole time with the number of undecided voters, which was more than double normal, what we see close to election day, uh, a signal that everybody missed. I mean, everybody, right? Um, but, you know, with the polling being uncompetitive in the Midwest, had she been going a lot to Wisconsin and Michigan, people would have been questioning that, right? Why is she going there? It's a waste of money. So, you know, hindsight's 2020 type of thing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, we couldn't get yard signs in Michigan. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no, seriously, I don't doubt it. And, yeah. and after the campaign, after the election, I asked one of the top people in the Clinton campaign, why couldn't we get something as simple as yard signs? And he told me, actually, there was a decision we made that we thought too many signs of Hillary, people driving up and down the road. Oh, my would God. Remind 
the Trump voters that they got to get out there and make sure she's not president. That does not surprise me at all. And in fact, like that is emblematic of what's happening still to this moment within the D triple C and at the state level. I mean, we just saw this happen in Virginia, where, you know, they did have a great cycle, they flipped the General Assembly, both chambers to Democrats, but they left in the process two state Senate seats and a couple of House of Delegate races on the table to things like that. This meaning these are four seats they could have won. Yes, yes, in Virginia. Yes. And didn't because because of of you know ideas like this that you can so Mike Pence came and rallied for Trump they brought nobody in on the Democratic side to drive up turnout right and the reason is it's not it's not an accident right just like you're saying here with the signs well we're afraid if we do that we'll drive up turnout on the other side well I've got news for Democrats any Democrat of any authority listening to this podcast Republicans are going to vote. End, you know, period, full stop. There is nothing that you can do to change that. They are going to vote. And what you are doing by not, you know, answering answering and reciprocating on their strategies of stake framing and signs and uh, campaign events and enthusiasm is depressing your own turnout. And this voter file analysis I'm being putting out in the New Republic is going to actually quantitatively demonstrate that. Yeah. (laughs) They, um, the Democratic establishment, did not understand and still doesn't to this day understand what you just said. That if you're worried that, oh, if we do this, what if, oh no, don't bring Michael Moore in. Why, that'll just increase the Republican turnout. No, the Republican turnout is already huge. No doubt. As you've just pointed yeah. out, mm-hmm. 83% yep. voted of Republicans. Yes. Of the Republicans, 83% of them their own people yeah so and 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 because part i mean this and this Jeez, will that's be, like seven that's only 17 percent stayed, right. stayed home okay yeah. so at least 10 percent had some kind of yeah problem with their feet and because and, partisanship yeah hyper partisanship oh, is what matters right i yeah. mean you when you're when i and once this piece comes out in the new republic i'll be able to show exactly you know um number one the republicans out turned out democrats and where and how and how that's strategy and and um lack of um strategic you know um uh matching Dem- uh, republican strategic um you know mobilization efforts you know hurts them but yeah when we look at florida i mean 83% of them voted and because when you're voting the one thing that is most predictive of the person you're going to vote for is party ID. If you want to flip the Florida governor, you know, which has been in the Republican Party's hands for several uh, terms, right? Um, Ultimately, what's going to decide if it's Andrew Gillum, or if it's Rick DeSantis, is what percent of the electorate on election day ends up being Republican and what percent ends up being Democratic, right? And the mix of independence in the middle. And if you don't equalize Democratic turnout with Republican turnout, then you've already lost. And, and so when we mm. look at what happened in Florida, where, you know, Democrats are just constantly underperforming because they don't focus on Latino turnout. So the reason Republicans win in Florida is because they turn out. Because they turn out a larger percentage mm. of their people than Democrats do of theirs. Right. And the reason is because when Democrats are running campaigns, you have these two buckets of voters, right? One of them is the persuasion bucket. What's that mean? Means people that are really reliable voters. In the voter file, they vote in every election. But... 
they might vote for a Republican and they might vote for a Democrat. The, the coding, because we don't know who you vote for, right? right. Um, but the coding is unsure, because maybe they vote sometimes in the Republican primary and sometimes they vote in the Democratic primary, right? Um, and then you've got another bucket of voters. You've got what we call the mobilization bucket. And some of them are quite obviously Democrats and they vote all the time. And those people are real, you can count, they're Michael Moore, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's another half of those or whatever. God help them, by the way. <laughs> yeah, God help them, right? Um, the other half of them are people who should be Democrats, right? They're young people or they're Latinos or they're college-educated women or whatever. There's some demographic tell there that suggests that they'd be a Democrat, but they have spotty turnout. They maybe vote only in presidential elections or they voted and then they disappeared off the, you know, whatever, right? They're not reliable in turnout. And so as a campaign, you have to make a decision. I have these resources. They're, they're finite. They're limited. Should I invest them in knocking on the doors of these persuadable voters who are definitely going to vote and then try to convince them to vote for me over my opponent? Or do I vote on, do I knock these doors of these people who definitely would vote for me if I could get them to show up? Okay. And usually it's some formula of how much to devote where. The campaign consultants will tell you, well, obviously, persuasion is more important because it's a two-vote scenario. If you can persuade someone to vote for you, not only are you getting the vote, you're denying your opponent the vote, mm -hmm. right? Do you right. see how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then, um, but those doors could be independents. A lot of times, Democrats are knocking on Republican doors, though. Like, they're going to people who are Republicans and trying to argue, hey, come vote for me. I'm a Democrat. Now, what I'm arguing is that made sense 20 years ago. Now, the that's a pretty futile exercise mm -hmm. uh, in the polarized era, right-leaning independents and Republicans are going to vote for the Republican, even if it's Roy Moore, mm -hmm. right? We can mm -hmm. see that in the exit poll data. Right. Okay. No relation. All right. So, yes, it would be wise to go and focus mm. on those persuasion doors yeah. if you could actually persuade them. But yeah. if you can't, and it's denying resources to those other voters, right? And then when we think about where we've gone in 20 years from 2004, which is not quite 20 years, but, you know, the, the dropped election of 2004, we're talking about the full enfranchisement of the millennial generation. They're fully enfranchised. And now we've got a partial enfranchisement of Gen Z. And because the Republican Party chose a path that, you know, basically rejected the Republican autopsy report of 2012, which was to moderate and start, you know, being more welcoming to minorities and to women and went the other way. Um, the Gen Z and millennial generation are disproportionately Democratic friendly. Right. Right. I mean, and yes. there's 160 million of them. Michael, right. 160 yeah. million of them. Yeah, let's just say that number again, because oh. I try to remind people <laughs> of this, that that just since President Obama was elected in 2008, which is uh, now 12 years ago, all right, there have been, just in these 12 years, 48 million 17-year-olds that turned 18, in other words, became eligible wow. voters. That's crazy. Eight million just since Obama was first elected. That's how many millennials. Yes. And now the Gen Zs, um, um, who the, sadly the, the Parkland kids told me that they actually refer to themselves as the Columbine generation because they've never known a day <sighs> in school. Uh, or a year in school without an active shooter drill. I'm sure. So sadly, I, yeah. mean, I hate hearing. I hate them saying hearing this, but 
that's the world they inherited and that's how, and they and they that's why they're so active about the climate and everything yeah, well, because they right. know they're the ones that are going to choke and, to death and that's the world that you know ineffective campaign techniques is guaranteeing for them right, right. because like we have the democrats have the numbers the numbers are sitting there okay so what's the problem here this is what i don't understand it, it it just it just because i just want to put it underscore something you said about those two buckets of voters so mm. the the bucket of voters that that maybe doesn't have the higher turnout in the Latino community, in the African-American community, amongst young people, amongst, you know, mm. whatever that is. Um, and in part, I've always seen that as the fact that they that they um, sometimes don't vote because uh, nobody has paid any attention to them. Nobody has made life better for them. Um, and And they have a very legitimate what the fuck right attitude about this and so um and so because and i know these campaign consultants and these people they show up in a state like michigan they're not necessarily from michigan they come to michigan and they say okay we have so much money let's try and get those those um uh those people that they probably will vote for us and if we can just convince them out there in the suburbs or the exurbs or in the rural areas they'll come with us and then somebody will say, yeah, but why don't we spend that money in, in downtown Detroit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't we spend that money in Flint? These are blacks. This is, yeah. they're not going to vote for the Republican. Yeah. And there's always that, yeah. And you know what that means. Yep. You know what they're really thinking and saying. That's a waste of money. And they take for granted. That's really, come on. They're going to vote for the Democrat anyways. They take it for, they take it for granted yep. that the black community will come out and you know, and I'm sure you know what I'm going to say here, is that in Michigan, well, I'll tell you, in Flint, there were approximately 8,000, believed to be about 8,000 African-American voters mm -hmm. who twice voted for Obama in 08 and 12, mm -hmm. or just in 12 if they were too young in 08. Um, 8,000 of them stayed home yep. in 2016. Mm -hmm. She lost the state by 10 to 11,000 no votes. 8,000 black voters in yes. Flint were ignored and not just ignored, we're being poisoned. Yep. And where was the cavalry? <laughs> yeah, no. where, we had a Democratic no president. Doubt. Where was the Army Corps of Engineers to come no in and dig doubt. up these pipes? My God. You know, yeah. and everybody, and I'm telling you, people were just like, and then they find out that Hillary was handed the the the, the, the questions before the Flint debate yeah. between her and Bernie. Yeah. She got the questions from CNN in advance. So the mothers of the poisoned children were used as props. No, the Flint water crisis is uh, in in the modern era. So, you know, 80s on, probably the biggest stain in terms of America's racial politics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, a, period. A, a black city <laughs> yeah. was poisoned. And when they found yeah. out it was being poisoned, still being poisoned. they hit it, they hit it yeah. and it's still being poisoned yeah. to this day. Yeah. So, and in, and in Detroit, same thing. Um, and I've shared with the listeners of this podcast, this incredible statistic that that never really gets reported by anybody nearly 90,000 Michigan voters didn't stay home yeah nobody organized this now I want to say this before I give you the statistic nobody organized it nobody suggested we do this nobody it just weirdly happened on its own that 89,000 Michigan voters in 2016 went to the polls on um, on uh, November 8th Stood in line. It was cold. It's November in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Stood in line for two or three hours in the cold. Went in, got their ballot, went in the booth, 
and voted for the Democrat. I shouldn't say all of them, but the majority of this 89,000 voted for the Democrat for Congress, state Senate, state rep, county commission, all down the ballot. And left the presidential blank. That is correct. Oh, my God. Left the top box blank. Really? A majority of the 89,000 did this in the most unplanned, greatest fuck you. Yeah, yeah. They stood in line just so they could send a message to the Democratic Party that you left us with this to vote against Trump. Well, they're not going to vote for Trump. That we know. They just left it blank. Yeah. Now, people listening to this will go, well, well, what a dumb thing to do. You haven't lived their lives. You don't live in Detroit. You yeah. don't live in Flint. Yeah, yeah. You aren't drinking um, lead water and watching your kid be permanently, you know, right. But even from it. Right. right. But even if you were from, even if you were for Hillary, you couldn't get a friggin' yard sign. You yeah. couldn't get any help. Right. Because they'd written, written you off. Yeah, yeah. And this is what I don't understand. Why do the Democrats not get this? It, it just... Um, well, here's the good news, Michael. Okay, yes, please, I need some good news. There will be no amount, as I say in the forecast, no amount of polling data or positive forecast or anything that will cause the Democratic candidate of 2020 to write off Michigan in 2020. Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So this is be careful what I wish for. We're yeah, going to yeah. be inundated You're going to be inundated. Ads, yes. My God. Thing. Yes. You're going to be inundated. No, there's like, I say that right in the forecast. Like, it doesn't matter how many polls show Trump out of competition in, in Michigan. And I believe Michigan of the three are going to, is going to be the, by far the widest margin he loses by. Um, I mean, look at Michigan, right? Whoo, just legalized pot constitutional amendment on gerrymandering we put it in the constitution yeah. hell we yeah made it a crime if you do voter suppression no doubt no yes, doubt correct. yeah yeah michigan is is um you know a good state but it's gonna get mad love in 2020 from both sides from both sides but right. it's but but yeah but out of necessity i mean both sides are going to believe it's out of necessity here's where trump though here's where the republicans have the advantage they don't have the problems that the democrats do um they don't have the hubris okay they don't have the insulation the insular um incestual problem you can't in mm -hmm. you can't infiltrate the DCCC, right? Mm -hmm. All these months my research has been out, no one has ever contacted me from the DCCC, right? right. Um, um, when you say, and so I mean, when you can't infiltrate them, you can hand them information on a silver platter that will help them win and they won't answer the door. Yeah, no, I, as far as I can tell, like they have no interest in it, right? Um, Why? Why I don't that? know, I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, my assumption is actually this is probably going to depress you, is that they, they they think that it's wrong. They they, they 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 think what's wrong. They think it's all wrong. They what's wrong? All of it. They think that you know the way the pathway to victory is through those white getting those white working class guys to vote for Joe Biden, and the way to do that is to nominate Joe Biden and probably serve up next to him someone like amy klobuchar would be the most risky pick that they could probably reason oh my God. you know wow. that's that's my fear that's what's going on because they still think it's 1980 mm -hmm. and they've got to get lunch bucket joe 
out there in Macomb yes. County, the white working class guy, that that's how we're going to win. And that's no malarkey, Mike. <laughs> so, but what's the truth? The truth of the matter is that it's the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Let me make something clear. The political class, the liberal media elites, the election elites see Joe Biden as risk of, like as the less risky yes, choice, they right? And yes. so they have framed him that way, and thus the voters view him that way. And I want to make that really clear, okay? Right, right. So, you know, it's a top-down frame, right? Uh, but whether or not, you know, wherever the frame comes from, the, the voters see him as the most electable because they hear all the time that he is the most electable and um, see him as, therefore, the least risky pick to go up against Trump. Uh, and they see that reflected in polling, never mind, you know, name ID issues or methodology, whatever, right? But they see that reinforced in the polling and the media narratives about the polling. So um, the electorate sees him as the least risky pick. I have been saying for a long time that I think Joe Biden is much more risky than he appears, right? And the reason is twofold. Number one, um, in terms of his age and acumen, in the debates, there were several times where he could not hold on to his train of thought. Okay, right, and right. and and when you compare him to the other people on the stage, especially the older people like Warren and Sanders, that's just not happening, right? I mean, it's clearly discernibly different for him trying to keep a collective thought together versus Sanders or Warren. They right? they both do well. Yeah, they both do the quite well. And Nancy Pelosi, who's older than Bernie. And Warren. Yeah. She's been on fire. Yeah. There's, you don't see any loss of faculty there. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. And I mean, you know, whatever is causing it, if it's a stutter, if it's um, nervousness, if it's, you know, whatever, the it, it's still going to be a liability. It's understandable. It's if his it is, job but, on the yeah. until he's elected is candidate Biden, right? And that means you have to be suave and charismatic and persuadable. And, you know, if you can't remember what you're talking about, it's a liability, right? right. Uh, so there's that. But the bigger risk for me for Biden is the consultant class that will come with him, The um, you know, which will be very Clinton campaign-like. Um, and it will be very um, traditional. And it will look at, you know, research like mine and 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 not you know be receptive to new ideas and new techniques i mean to me if you want to win for sure in 2020 then you take you know a good chunk of your television budget and you redirect it to gotv and a lot of that to gotv of your get out uh, the vote dem yeah. yeah dem coalition voters not i'm not saying progressive voters i'm saying dem coalition voters i mean especially in places like florida where the underinvestment in latino turnout has been the reason they've lost <laughs> multiple elections right the democrats lose yeah, because yeah, yeah. they pay no attention to yeah. and and then and then that's a matter of how do you do it well you don't do it by hiring cookie cutter digital and direct mail firms to put out mm -hmm. digital and direct mail like cookie cutter ads the republicans are effective at messaging because they make their messaging about stakes making people feel a stake i must show up and vote because the fate of the world hangs on my participation. If I don't show up to vote, they're going to take my gun away. If I don't show up to vote, babies are going to be murdered, right? We don't talk to people like that. So the, what, do, what do we say? 
we say, um, oh, um, if you don't show up, oh, show up on election day, or, or the you know Republican Party is going to repeal HB four four, which is a you know single line <laughs> budget item that might restrict funding to Planned Parenthood, making it harder for women and um, you know teenagers to see their doctor. And right. By that time, they've lost everybody. <laughs> no doubt. Right. I mean, the whole message, Michael, has to be in a, in a glance on a direct mailer. So I collected national. Uh, direct mailers through 2018 and tried to show people this is how Republicans campaign versus how Democrats campaign. And, um, In other words, the, the message should be if you don't show up and vote for the Democrat, right. the Republicans are going to take your birth control No away. doubt. They're going to... Just you, say it like or that. Or your daughters are going to have to get back alley abortions, right? Just say it like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yes, right. Or people will die. People you know? will die. Yes. Your sons and daughters are going to be sent to another needless, endless war. Yes, Right. That's not why they signed up for the military. Yeah, I mean, and, and so you said, you know, so with these, um, you know, voters in Detroit, number one, they haven't been targeted with resources to get them to show up. Okay, so like they've literally been ignored. But second off, the message has been ignored too because the the belief is, oh, I've got a I've got a message to these white. Uh, moderate people, the way that I message to them is by uh, by basically what I call the embarrassed Democrat or the apologetic Democrat message, which is, hi, I'm um, Rachel Bittekoffer. I'm a Democrat running for office, and I'm a fiscal conservative, and I'm not like those other Democrats because, boy, are they embarrassing. You know, like, how are you supposed to win the message war for white, moderate independence if your message is, God, I suck? My party sucks. My ideology sucks. You know, you need. And, and, give, give me another example. You call them the apologetic Democrats. Yes. So give me another example of that. Oh uh, yeah, I'm. You know, hi, I'm. I'm uh, Michelle Nunn. I'm running for Georgia Senate. Um, you know, oh, if I get elected to the Senate, what would I do on Ob- Obamacare? Well, you know, Obamacare's got a lot of problems, and you know, da 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 da. Well, how about you say this? You're damn right. I I'm going to vote for Obamacare, and let me tell you why. I mean, the day that right. Obamacare was passed. 23 million people gained insurance for the first time. Right. 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 I mean, how about that message? Right. 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 <laughs> no, the Democrats always like this. So back when uh, when Kerry, John Kerry was running. Yes. You know, there's a there is a, a, a gun problem uh, in this country, but we have to be careful. Paul. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, oh! I hear Democrats talk about guns and they talk They're about over. Second Amendment. Like, I'm like, why are you talking about the Second Amendment? Right, right. What, you know what I mean? Like, you're not go and talk about dead people. People are dying. Right. Dying. Right. Right. My, my kid, Michael, here's yeah. the ad. Yeah. This is the ad I'd run yeah. on guns. OK. okay. Yeah. Here's the ad. I'm laying in bed with my six-year-old child. Talk about the Columbine generation. I've got two kids. One's 19 and one's six. My 19-year-old was born at the beginning of the Columbine, mm-hmm. uh, basically. I mean, he was born in 2000, and, and yeah. the other one is is of the mass shooting age. And, you know, we're laying in bed, my six-year-old, we're reading stories, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just started kindergarten, and he says to me in his, in his kindergarten voice, teacher says we have to be quiet or the bad man will hear us. And I say, what? what? What'd you say? And he says, teacher says we have to be quiet or the bad man will hear us. And I realize my little six-year-old boy is talking to me, telling me, trying to explain to me about the moment today at school when him and his, you know, 15 kindergarten friends 
climbed into a closet with his teacher, hid in the dark, and, oh, you know, geez. got briefed on how to hide from an AK-47, right? right. That's the ad you cut, right? right. Show a mom yes. telling her kid, with her kid telling, yeah. you know, that. Here's the tagline yeah. at the end of the ad, by the way, if I direct this ad. The tagline says, as they're all piled in the closet, shivering and worrying that the gunman is out there, um, we teach our kids how to avoid an AK-47 before we teach them to read. There you go, right? In America, and only in America. (laughs) And only in America. Do we teach you how to deal with the active shooter before we teach you how to read and write? No doubt. I mean, that's that's called emotive messaging. That's all the Republicans do. It's worked to great effect for them for decades. And if if the Democrats could just learn to do it a little bit better, yeah. I mean, granted, we you don't want to take it overboard because, like, you know, one of my book projects is called Fear Factory, and it looks at how Republican campaign techniques took it a little far and drove their voters a little nuts, right? It's like a Frankenstein right. effect. Certainly, there there's malfeasance. And, that, and you'll hear that, you know, within liberals, well, we don't want to be like the Republicans. You don't have to go, you know, full Republican. But you can't talk to people in an analytical way. That's just not how people respond. I mean, psychology is pretty clear that people are emotive, you know, animals. Right. And if you're talking to them in an analytical way, you're not going to, especially people who are casual voters. What's the message? Uh to voters if we want them to vote for the Democrat and the issue is health care. Okay. Here, you know, here's to me like what should be happening. Democrats have a brand issue, right? That, that I mean they have the reason they have a brand issue is that for 30 years their brand has been under assault, a daily assault on right wing radio, white right wing media, uh, an uh, assault that's never answered, never reciprocated, never defended. Uh, again, the only defense you ever hear is I'm not one of those Democrats, right? Um, and, you know, much like BP, remember the BP oil spill? Yeah. What did BP do to get over the oil spill? Did they, you know, effectively clean it up? Yeah, a little bit. But mostly what they did, Michael, is they ran those television ads talking about how much they loved nature. Oh, my God. They and saved Louis- all those yes, birds right? those TV ads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Democrats, you know, that's what the Democrats need, basically. They need a national rebrand. And mm. what they need to do is they need to say, you know, who, who, which party has a good economic record, the Democrats or the Republicans? What you need to do is you need to come out and you need to rebrand the party in an affirmative way. Stop telling people the, that the best candidates you have to offer to them are actually versions of the other party's economic message. Republican light. Especially when that other party's economics destroyed the national economy, mm-hmm. murdered the American middle class, mm. right? Yes. I mean, murdered American manufacturing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so like there's, it's like, who should be apologizing for their economic record? Yet, yet the, the party leadership and the media have been pushing us now for months to go to the middle, go to the, go to the old way. Biden represents the old way. You know, the now it's Buttigieg is is the middle. Right. You know, go to the middle, and and I've read your research and I've watched you on television explain it's the middle that is our death trap. That by moving away from the liberal left end of politics, can you explain this? Because I don't think when you say it, and I've seen you on shows, the host of the show is like, oh, 
what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, here's the thing. Let me let me explain it this way. Do you ever hear a Republican on the stump campaigning for office talking about how he's not a, a conservative? No, right? No, no they're proud of it. And and the, yeah, because the because when you when you the immediately when you start telling people that you're not a conservative, what you're doing is you're giving your ideology a negative frame. Right. Right? You're emitting something's flawed with it, right? right? So when I say that the party needs to rebrand, I'm really I mean what I'm saying is it's not that moderate messaging isn't important, it's that they're doing it entirely wrong and the the way that they're doing it makes this um unnatural tension between the moderate wing of the party and the progressive wing where there really isn't that much space in between them in terms of policy preferences and um you know issue if issue preferences really where that tension lies is in the moderate wing they think talking about liberalism in a positive way is bad electoral politics is it no, it's the opposite, right? Going, I mean, and here's a good data point. I just threw this out on Twitter. So, so, and uh, Bershear, right, um, in Kentucky. We just had this Kentucky gubernatorial election. He focused very much on health care. Of course, Kentucky. He's the Democrat. Yeah, he's mm, the Democrat. Sure. He, yeah. he, he um, beat and, um, uh, Bevin, uh, I can't remember who his first name was. Republican. Matt Bevin. Matt Bevin, yeah, who yeah. was a very unpopular Republican Kentucky governor. Uh, Matt Bevin's problems also, though, beyond just personality unpopularity, was that he got rid of expanded Medicaid. In, o- in Kentucky, right? Mm-hmm. And also came after the teachers union. So there's some policy stuff there, right? Um, and in this upset in 2019, this um, gubernatorial election, the Democrat beat the Republican, a pretty close election. And what was really notable is that he picked up votes, the Democrat picked up votes that went to the Republican candidates for lieutenant governor and attorney general, right? So what we call split ticket voting. And so the takeaway from like, you know, the D triple C mainstream is, oh, see, as long as you run as a moderate, you know, blue dog type Democrat, and you don't talk about Trump, you can get these moderate Republicans to switch over in the right conditions and vote for you. Is that the right lesson? Well, you know what, I just was looking at some data in Texas. Mm Ted Cruz's race against Beto O'Rourke, mm-hmm. okay? In Ted Cruz's race against Beto O'Rourke, Greg Abbott, the Texas governor, was also on the ballot. And what we see in those election returns, because I was looking at some state legislative data and just happened to see this, um, we see the same same situation. People who cast their ballots for Greg Abbott cast their ballots for Beto O'Rourke. Hmm? Mm. Okay, so that's interesting, because you can't make an argument to me that Beto O'Rourke ran as a blue dog Democrat. No, he did not. No, he didn't. I mean, he ran he, in support of Colin Kaepernick. No doubt, and he <laughs> he ran in support. I mean, he ran as a what I would call a liberal Democrat. Okay, yes, it's not Texas, a it's especially. not a Bernie Sanders Democrat. No. It's not a blue dog Democrat. Right. But he ran as a Democrat's Democrat. He mm-hmm. said, "You're damn right, I'm a Democrat." And Stacey Abrams also adopted this model. I'm a Democrat, and let me tell you why. Right. Right. So what's, it's a what's new your model analysis then of, of so so people who voted for Beto O'Rourke also voted for the Republican for governor, meaning meaning there is split same incidents of split ticket balloting 
Yet, Beto O'Rourke did not run as a blue dog moderate. So you're saying that, for instance, if we if Democrats want to take over the Senate in 2020, that it is possible to get voters in Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, Maine, uh, Colorado, uh, to to some to split their ticket. Yes, it's possible. And and number two, there's no one recipe, right? It doesn't mean you have to disavow yourself of democratic policies, especially things like gun control, uh, climate change, healthcare, you know, um, what what I would say is, ultimately, and what I'll show in this voter file analysis, and what my forecast already proves is true or wouldn't have worked in 2018, is that if Democrats want to win elections, they have to immobilize their coalition to the polls. They, Meaning, what does that mean? Means people have to show up to vote. Right? Well, they got to the, yes. get the base out. Yes. And, and if so you base, are serving up, I mean, right now, Democrats basically can't lose because Trump is a natural motivator. And though you won't hear people say that in survey data, hey, I'm showing up to vote because of Donald Trump, something spiked turnout by 15 points in the midterms. Okay. And it wasn't healthcare because healthcare was on the ballot in 2010. It was on the ballot in 2012, 2014, and sure as hell was on the ballot in 2016 when the Republicans already controlled the Congress and Trump ran on repeal and replace. Okay. So when we started this, I told you I'm, I'm depressed and thinking that, oh my God, I think Trump could win again. Uh, you're, what you're saying is, is that it's, it is very possible that he will not win in 2020. If what I'm saying is Donald Trump will not win in 2020 because the turnout for the Democratic coalition, which includes progressives, includes rank and file Democrats and includes independent leaners that lean left is going to be huge. So I don't have anything to worry about. I can sleep. No, no. you'll be worried every day. Should I be worried? Yes, I need you to be for my model. (laughs) Oh, because it doesn't work. Unless, Unless you're worried. I'm on pins and needles. That's exactly right. And I'm ready and I'm going to work my butt off. Yes. To get the Democrat elected. Yes. And, you know, here's. Does it matter the, who the Democrat is? Here's the thing. So when I when I talked about when I released the model on July 1st of 2018 or 19, I said, you know, it doesn't matter so much who the nominee is. Maybe a little bit if it is somebody, a disruptor, I called him, like Bernie Sanders. And here's where it would matter. It matters if the party believes he can't win. Hmm? Because when the party believes a candidate can't win, then they hold back and they um, don't invest as much money. Uh, A great example of that would be Kara Eastman in, um, oh gosh, I always mess up the district and then she's like do that uh nebraska too i want to say mm -hmm. um in my model for 2018 42 seats pinged because of the demographics of college education partisan competition and racial demographics okay and one of them was sending a very clear signal that it was going to flip and that was the district Kara eastman was running in which is Nebraska too. And, um, but because she was a progressive um, who challenged a more establishment preferred candidate and beat them, 
the party pulled back investment on her and didn't really invest in the race. And don't you know that even without any of that help, she almost beat the Republican, mm. came within like a point and a half or two points of winning. Mm. If the party had only believed that she could do it, she would have won. Right. So do right. you see what I'm saying? Like when when the party doesn't be, if the party doesn't believe I'm in the candidate, that's a that's then the party yeah. then becomes an enemy of the people. The party becomes an enemy if the if the majority of the people are fired up, say about Bernie Sanders. Well, yes, if Sanders wins the primary, then the party better get on the Sanders train because that's what happened with Trump. Right. right. I mean, the party ultimately got on board. It wasn't. They, got on board. they hated they Trump. They weren't happy about it, oh, they hated but they them. got on board. And they got on board in a big way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they remember that Republican convention, they couldn't even get people to want to come and talk. Right. They couldn't get the Republican governor of the state the convention yes. was in to even attend. And and Bernie Sanders is no Donald Trump, okay? I mean. <laughs> you mean that in what sense? In every sense. Every single sense of the word. Such as? Competence, ahead. intelligence, temperament, behavior, um, So you're saying acumen. Sanders might be yeah. more competent, more intelligent. Yes, I'm saying <laughs> the only thing that Bernie Sanders is, is more liberal than the party is used to. So they're going to have to get on board. And if they don't get on board, yes. the party establishment. They're, they're, they could be shooting themselves in the foot. Right in the foot. Right. Wow. Yeah. So if, if, I mean, in order for Sanders to actually win, and this was true in 2016 too, then he's going to have to convince a more diverse coalition of voters to get behind him. That's just bottom line. That's mm -hmm. what held him back in 2016. Mm -hmm. And that's what his, his roadblock will be in 2020. If he can't convince. What would the convincing take? Because he's obviously not going to change his positions. No, I mean, things. they just, they need, you know, he needs, they need to change. They need to look at him and say, that's my horse that I want to bet on. See, I think I could maybe go and meet with the DNC and explain to them how these particular issues and what he stands for is better for them, better for them in terms of getting out the vote, especially the base vote. What I've been, what I've been preaching for the last few months is that nearly 70% of the electorate, the eligible voters, in other words, mm -hmm. who can vote next year, Republican, Democrat, whatever. In other words, anybody who's a citizen over the age of 18, right? 70% mm -hmm. of those eligible voters next year are either women, people of color, or young adults between 18 and 35. That's almost 70% of the electorate. And whose base is that? Right, right. People of color, young people, women. That's that's the base of the how can we lose if that's the base? And then the second thing I point out is on the issues, the American people now have come to us. The American people believe that a woman should be paid the same as men. The American people believe that climate change is real. The American people believe that seven twenty five an hour is way too low. The American you know, look at right. any poll says that the American public takes the liberal what's considered yes. the liberal democratic position on the issues yes how in heaven's name can we lose yes so here's here's one thing i'd add to this okay so you know when we're talking about sanders i mean here's an argument that you could make here's i was driving to the to here okay. i came up the eastern shore which is very rural in uh, mm. rural virginia yes i passed a sign it, a big billboard. It had Donald Trump on it, one of more, more flattering pictures of him. They, they believe it or not, exist. Mm -hmm. The motto on the sign was very short, very, very short. The motto was the people's president. 
Wow. Yeah. That's something, that sounds kind of... That's a good slogan right there. The, the people's president. That's a populist slogan, Michael. That's a populist. There's that's only a one or two candidates in the Democratic Party that can offset a slogan like that. And it ain't Joe Biden. Right. <laughs> uh, who, yeah, well it's, well, it's Bernie. Right. So the reason the party is convinced that it would be electoral like death sentence is that, you know, you have to keep in mind where they are. They're, you know, they're on TV. They're in these Twitter bubbles. You know, they're they're talking to the Tom Nichols of the world. I mean, Tom's a friend of mine. But, you know, all these moderate people who are like, oh, I would vote for any Democrat except for Bernie Sanders, you know, or except for mm. Bernie and, and, and Liz Warren, you know mm. what I mean? Mm. So, you know, it, it's, I, I, I guess what I say for the Democratic Party, for the D-Trip, it's a, it's a Jesus problem, right? It's a forgive me, Lord, for they know not what they've done kind of problem, where they, everything that they're doing, a lot of, I think, progressives think Oh, it's because of the money. It's the donors and the money and the business and the corporate interest. I'm not saying that that doesn't have a factor. But ultimately, most of what motivates people in this business is winning elections, right? So what they're doing is what they think is the best electoral winning maximization, you know, solving that equation. And what I'm arguing is the what was best to solve that equation in 1990 is different now right yeah that's very true i mean i when i say that to people they don't like me saying it about the money because of course we yes we do know money yes we've got to get money out of our political system it does work better in other democracies when you can't contribute millions and millions of dollars etc cetera, etc cetera. but having said that what is different between 1990 and now and why some people are still stuck in the 90s is that I don't think you you probably know the number better than I do. I don't think Trump spent even half of what Hillary spent. No. He am I correct? Yeah, less than half. Yeah. Less than half. Yeah. He spent he had less than half. It was the, the most unbalanced presidential campaign general election ever in the modern era. The modern I don't era. know if there was yeah. ever one in history, but yeah. Yeah, in my book I look at that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, the Buchanan Tyler thing, I'm, 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 I don't know about them back in the 1840s, yeah. but I'm just, yeah. I'm just in saying the modern system, in the modern system. Yeah. Um, so, so Hillary had more money yep. than Trump. Yeah. And both and, metrics, the super PAC and the individual donations. Wow. Yeah. Because Wall Street was terrified of Donald Trump. Ultimately, here's the, here's the thing about the democratic coalition. It is extremely diverse. And you cannot win the Democratic nomination unless you have um, uh, either fractured the preferences of of voters of color, or um, you are the you're the one that they're hurting behind. Okay, so now according to the latest polls, that would have been true about Bernie in 2016, but now it sh the last poll I saw said that he was number one with non-white voters, described meaning um, uh, Latino. Uh, black, Asian, etc. Okay. Up, up until this point, week. it's yeah. been Biden has that support, strongly has that support. And but that's what's been keeping him as the front runner, despite all of the um, issues that he's had. There are more Latino voters than black voters, correct? Yes. Okay. So, and Bernie's been well, number one with Latinos for like five or six months. It 
there are more Latino voters, I think. But why don't we talk about that more though? When you talk about the Biden and the black vote, and I'm telling you, let me tell me, help me with this. We were told in '16 that the Clinton, the black voters love Clintons. Yeah. Bill Clinton, you know that awful thing they used to say he was the first black president. Mm -hmm. You know, and and black voters love the Clintons, and yet in the three states that gave Trump the election. Um, it was it was the black voters in Milwaukee for Wisconsin, in Detroit and Flint for Michigan, and in Philly for Pennsylvania. They did not turn out in the way that we were all told. We white people were told by other white people that that black people love Hillary, black people love the Clintons. Well, yeah, and yeah. it's like who is making this stuff up? And now we hear it this year: black people love Biden. Well, so those things are simultaneously true, though, right? In terms of the Democratic electorate, primary electorate, the strong preference amongst candidates was for Hillary Clinton, and that preference was what helped her win the delegate math, okay? Um, and But it was also simultaneously true that ter- after surging in 2008 and 2012, black turnout recline, uh, declined, went back to its previous levels after Obama was not on the ticket. So even though they had uh, Clinton, black people love Clintons. There's a Clinton on the ballot in 2016. There is actually a decrease of black vote in that general election. It went election. back to its pre-Obama levels. Why? Because. Well, because there wasn't Obama. Is, yeah. Because of descriptive representation. So when I said, you know, again, most of my analysis is based on solving only one equation. So I'm very different than you and, and most people. Yeah. I solve one equation winning like it's the only equation that i care about so um when i look at the equation of winning what solves the equation is a female um person of color just so happens to be that stacy abrams is also an amazing awesome person so that's nice but um you know the fact is and there's some literature to support this uh by davin phoenix the uh, out of um um, UC Mercer, which, which I had not found before, but I was seeing this in the data. So it's really nice to have a theoretical basis for why I'm seeing in the data a lower like turnout surge number for African-American voters in 2018. So like, you know, my whole theory is threat, right? People are motivated to vote because of Trump and he's a threat. And so people, well, his argument, his thesis was black voters are going to be less sensitive to the Trump threat because of institutionalized racism, because of all the years of just being screwed by the system have made them have lower expectations of the system. And therefore, when it screws them by electing someone like Trump, it is a um, less a con- of a shock. It's a continuation. Yes, of the norm. it's a continuation of the norm. So, so the appeal to the black community, like, oh, you've got to get on vote for the Democrat because you'll have Trump. Right. They're like, yeah, because, and yeah, your yeah, point yeah. is. Yeah, because their lives, you know, they've experienced this institutionalized racism. They're continuing to experience it. And that mm-hmm. shock is less, they're less sensitive to it. Yeah. And I could, and what was cool is that I found, I find this research after I've seen the phenomenon in my data mm-hmm. without the theoretical mm-hmm. explanation, right? right. Uh, and so I immediately reached out to him and was like, hey, I've got this data, you know. Um, but what that told me in terms of solving the utility function of winning, which is the only utility function I personally care about solving is beating Trump, um, is that that told me it matters for black voters in terms of turnout having descriptive representation on that ballot. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been over 150 years since the end of the Civil War. We'll call it the end of slavery as they, we knew it then. Um, and I think the fact is, is that African-Americans still 150 years later remain on the bottom rung mm-hmm. of the economic ladder, yep. on the bottom rung of, of other metrics of the ladder. Yep. They and, and Native Americans yep. share and, share that rung. And when their children are poisoned systemically, mm-hmm. not right. only do, does no one pay criminally, right? right, right. the nation gives a, a collective yawn. Right. Yeah. So don't be surprised. Should we worry about this year? Should we worry about black turnout in 2020? So I think black turnout's going to be stronger in the data that I'm seeing from these congressional races. It's stronger. I mean, there's a surge there, but it's not as big as the Latino surge who are feeling the threat much more acutely, obviously, with their, you know seeing Latino children separated from their parents and put in cages and dying in you know, these uh, border holdings. And mm-hmm. um, um, so there's going to be an increase, right? So some of that, that that loss that the Clinton, you know, team suffered in Detroit is going to be mitigated. I think the D-trip has learned some lessons. I mean, they're not talking to me, but I would assume that they are, you know, learning lessons and, and focused more on, you know, the, that type of stuff. But if you really want to cross your uh, T's and dot your I's, you make sure you put Stacey Abrams on that ticket. Right. Right? What would a Bernie, a Bernie Stacey Abrams ticket, uh, how would that do? That would be, it would be pretty good. That'd right. be a good ticket. Yeah. What? Uh, so winning, it's all about the winning. It, yeah. So let's say- You can't Mary, do anything if you don't win, Michael. Let's say right now, there's somebody out in Illinois, out in Montana, is running for state senate, state rep. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're liberal- um, progressive maybe um, and they're being told by everybody no 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 don't say any anything liberal you got to move it more to the what they call the center but the center is really what they mean is move it toward republicans and what they believe in and that's the way you're going to win the more you sound like a republican the more you will win they're listening to us right now what advice do you have for that woman who is running for state representative for state assembly out there in the middle of the country and being told by everybody, you win when you sound like a Republican, you win when you sound more conservative. Um, Twofold. Number one, there are a lot of candidates mainstream too. I'm not talking about progressives that now understand that that is not the winning message. And so I, I am happy to say, though the party organization doesn't seem to get it, there are a lot of candidates that are seeing the benefits of standing up for what they believe in. What have they seen? And, what are and the benefits? The electoral benefits and also you being able to, to go home proud about your job. And knowing that you're you're doing what you wanted to do when you went there, you know, when you ran for office. And but they've made you afraid that if you if you say any, don't talk about guns. Oh no, no, yeah, no. Like don't, don't there say. is change going on. That that is true. So like in 2016, I would agree with you, Michael. But in 2018, and especially post 2018, there is a change coming. Um, even the amongst, change has occurred, hasn't even it? amongst these, you know, frontline type Democrats, and mm-hmm. we can see this. I mean, there are people out there. Look at these seven moderate uh, frontliners that penned that op-ed the day after the Ukraine scandal broke. They penned this op-ed. 
pushes Nancy Pelosi to move right away on impeachment. Mm-hmm. You know, Elaine Luria from Virginia, where I'm from, you know, has defended her impeachment vote with a really, really strong ad. You know, I took an oath to defend the Constitution. She's a military um, Navy veteran. You know, I'm I came to serve my country, not a party, not a you know, not an office. Right. We are really seeing, I think, the beginnings of a renaissance in the way that Democrats are running for and serving in office. Um, It's just that we're in its infancy Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of work to be done to get to the point where Democrats are are able to win um, steadily. And be able to really flex the muscle because, like again, they're leaving so many votes on the table in so many places by not, um, you know, being being as it's, it's two things: brave in your messaging, but also running the right campaign operation, which is just as important as what's coming out of your mouth is that campaign operation and the type of um, direct mail that's going out in it and the type of door knocking strategy that you're running. What's the essence of making it the correct? messaging the correct uh, um, running of that campaign to make it work so that local Democrat can win. So in terms of the messaging, if you're embarrassed about yourself, no voter is going to vote for you in the middle, especially. So you you have to be proud of who you are and make an affirmative case for what you believe in. Uh, And in terms of the messaging, um, you know, you're not you're not going to get people who are casual voters to show up and vote with policy briefs. Okay, if they cared about policy, they wouldn't be casual voters. So you have to find a different message that works for them, something that gives them a personal stake in showing up and voting for you. Like there's something wrong in a country where our children learn how to do an active shooter drill before they learn to read and write. Exactly. Vote for me because I will not give your children that America. That's exactly right. Jeez, it's so easy to say. It is so easy. And you know what? What what are my chances? Here's the other thing, (laughs) Michael. I'm I'm not trying to to teach people to do something that is like an innovate. I'm not trying to invent a new form of plastic, okay? These are all things the Republican Party has been using for great success electorally for a long time. Right. And it's time that what you're saying is to, for our side, my side, to... Take a page out of that playbook. Yes. I mean, the, the roadmap is right there. And the and the demographics are just sitting there just waiting. And right now, Trump is motivating Democrats to show up to vote. But especially post-Trump, what are you going to do in the midterms of 2022 to hold on to the House? Right. Right. Because, you know, believe it or not, people are, you know, if Trump's gone, the, the muscle's going to relax. So you have to figure out a way to get people to commit to voting going forward when we think about these competitive states yeah the the truth of the matter is the reason they're competitive is that the republican party is outnumbered in a great many places i know they are in michigan but because they turn out at such higher proportions they're able to be competitive and democrats don't okay so that's what we're we're talking about like uh the numbers advantage for democrats is in texas they could flip texas right now but the the the, num- the turnout isn't there, right? The, so the numbers are there, the people, the physical people are there, but the strategy and the investment isn't. So when Bernie wins, 
the primaries, if that happens, right? I'm assuming, I hope it'll happen. Um, I have to meet with the DNC to get them behind him. It won't work if they don't put the full force and the bank behind him. Yeah, and you know, it might be helpful if you tell them that you they could they could put cons, uh, liberal justices on the Supreme Court, right? I mean, right. that's what the conservatives did. Like, we right. know you don't like Trump, but you can control the Supreme Court. I mean, that message never went out to Democrats, disaffected Sanders voters in 2016. But the fact of the matter is, let me tell you the truth. In 2016, if Hillary Clinton had won, the liberals would have controlled the Supreme Court majority for the first time since like the 1960s. And with that majority, they could have gotten rid of Citizens United they could have gotten rid of gun, you know, made severe restrictions on guns. They could have gotten rid of gerrymandering. They could have done a lot of shit that it's on that like dream list for liberals. It was all right there within reach. And they never once ran those ads, never once. And the reason why is because they thought, well, if we run those ads, it will make Republicans vote. That's right. Don't give Michigan any yard signs. It'll remind Republicans to vote. Yeah. <sighs> Man. So like, there's what just we just have to fix you just have to fix these, but you know I mean it's about it's once you once you understand you have a problem you can fix it. That is correct. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast. I'm glad to be on it. I am honored that you <laughs> drove here from Newport News, Virginia, uh, to yeah. be on. Um, I'm so pleased, and I and I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that it all began. My my odyssey, probably arguably, began when a man named Michael Moore hit me with a package of ramen noodles in 2004 oh, at an no. arena event <gasps> in Eugene, Oregon, at oh. the fairgrounds, because I was a non-voter in 2000. And so I got slammed with a packet of ramen noodles to and told right. to show up and vote oh, in geez, 2004. That's, and you did. And I did. Because, and I also then went and enrolled in college at a community college and uh, said, I want to be a, a political scientist. And uh, I was like, I want to be like Michael Moore and Rachel Maddow and... And you know, so all, you weren't you weren't going to college then. You weren't, no, you, I was a single mom. I was twenty four. I was a recovering hippie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so I remember this rally in Eugene, and um, and I asked for all the slackers to yeah. to, to stand slacker, and I defined it by um, you're either not registered to vote, you didn't vote in the last election, you're not planning to vote in this election. So you were one of those people who stood. Yeah. And then I said, okay, if you will promise me that you will vote in this election. I had two things, the two things that slackers need the most, uh, ramen noodles yeah, and fresh, clean underwear. And, <laughs> yes. and so I only got the noodles. You only got the noodles. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is a shame because the noodles, I held on to those things for years, but they did eventually deteriorate. Yeah, the fruit of the loom would still be alive, <laughs> yeah. let me tell you. But it, it was really, I, I so people raised their hand, got the, so I, now I don't know, have you revealed that, because I, I don't think it's legal to buy votes like i basically paid you i paid <laughs> That's you true. but i didn't say who you had to vote for no, i just no. i just wanted you to get involved you just yes yeah just be an american be a citizen get off the bench and, and <laughs> you might have been in violation of a little campaign finance some kind of there. campaign finance there but but it got you <laughs> it 
did. to vote that year. It did. And then you went to... And you know what? That's wow. why I have hope, too, though, right? Because young people... So I was I was 23 or 24. I didn't vote in the 2000 election because I was 19. And I was busy. I was busy having fun, <laughs> being young. and But I was smart. And the people who were sitting around me, you know, of course, we were talking about the Bush administration and Iraq and the Iraq war. And I was you know, unusually well-informed. And when I stood up, they were horrified that I had not voted Your in the friends, 2000 election. There, yes. Wow. Yeah, horrified. And, you know, so like there's millions of me's out there who didn't vote in 2016. And those people are going to be there in 2020 for America. I know it. Oh, I want to believe that. In fact, I want to do as much as I can this year to devote myself to uh, reaching out to what I call the largest party in America, the non-voter That's party. That's exactly right. And um, because I know, I know many of them are not voting uh, because they don't care. Uh, they're living in the same world I'm living in. Right. They're seeing the same fires out West. Yeah. They're living in it maybe yeah. than I am not but living in it, but I see it and we all are experiencing this. And, um, and I know that, I know that maybe all any of us who are listening to this, just to to hold your hand out to don't assume just because somebody you know them that they that they actually are a voter. They may not be. Yeah. And and have the have the conversation. Find out why. And and maybe they have a legitimate reason why they're not voting. I mean legitimate yes. to them certainly. Yeah, yeah. And and instead of berating them, yep. acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get I get Flint. I get it why you didn't vote. Uh, cause your kids are being poisoned. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to devote myself to fixing that. That is wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to, let's get a ballot proposal on like they did in Michigan to get rid of gerrymandering mm-hmm. to make marijuana legal or that state over there. That's raising the minimum wage, doubling it. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Yep. College debt. Wow. There's a ballot proposal that will reduce college debt. Let's do that. Well, one of the things that that a lot of people who are non-voters, what separates them from voters is this thing called efficacy, right? So voters recognize the activity of voting pays a dividend in terms of policy. The effect of voting. They get the effect and they see it. Don't assume that everybody understands that that it actually matters if you vote, that it could render just because it hasn't given them a benefit yet doesn't mean it can't give them a benefit if they were to do it now, right? Uh, help them. I mean, if the party can't make that message for them, you should help, right? Each, every single person can be a party, be a messenger for the party or for the candidate, whoever the nominee is. If you love them or you hate them, you can still argue to me anyway that they're an improvement over Donald Trump. And, you know, this is a all hands on deck moment. And And I've been telling people, if you're over the age of 50, find somebody who is under the age of 40 and take them with you to vote. If everybody who was over 50 did that, you could not lose. Wow. This has been uh, an incredible uh, conversation. And I'm very moved by you telling me that story about when you were a single mom at 24 and coming to my my rally there in, in Oregon. And, I, and, and I'm going to tell you why it's important to me personally, that you told me this, not for everybody else listening to this, but uh, I can't tell you how many times over the last 20 years, um, I haven't wanted to get on that train, that plane, that bus and go and do that rally. And, and, and it's not easy. Uh, You have a family. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. It, um, um, and I can't tell you how many times I've just wanted to say to hell with it, you know, and what's the point 
And then, of course, Trump wins, and then you really yeah. feel like you sink into a despair that is that is crushing. And I am not the only one that feels this. I know that there are millions listening to this right now that are feeling the same thing and have felt the same thing. You telling me that reminds me that I cannot ever utter, utter the words again. <laughs> what the fuck? Who cares? What's the point? Um, um, I'm tired. You know, I don't want to go to Oregon. Yeah. Wherever your Oregon is, to those of you listening, it could just be your neighborhood. Wherever that is, whatever it requires to get up off the couch, off the sofa, out of the lazy boy, um, and out the door to do something. Um, that's my big takeaway here uh, today. The fact that, not as you said, not just in Florida, but in all these other states, there are more Democrats mm -hmm. than Republicans. States you wouldn't even think. Yep. Where there are more Democrats. Mm-hmm. Than Republicans. Yep. Um, I mean, they, they know it, too. That's why they're trying to, you the know. Republicans know it. Hide. Yep. That's why they're trying to purge the voter rolls. I mean, but the truth is, there's nothing that they can do to fight it if there was motivation, if the people just showed up. Because there's more of us than there are of them. There is exactly right. There is a lot more of us. A lot more of us. Than there are of them. <laughs> so there's no excuse. There is no excuse. To lose in 2020. That's exactly right. Thank you for the work you do. Um, I'm so glad uh, that the world now knows more of you. Well, thank you. Yes, you're, you're, you're so laboring pleased. away down there in Newport News, Virginia, <laughs> and we've seen you on MSNBC now. And you're going to have this piece coming out in the New Republic. I hope more people um, uh, look you up and look up your work. Uh, Rachel Bittacoffer uh, is her name, um, and uh, she is um, fighting the good fight for all of us. Um, thank you again. Thank you. Those of you who are listening, uh, to rumble with Michael Moore, tell your friends about this podcast, please, uh, subscribe to it. It's free. Talk to you again very soon. Thank you again, Rachel. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. And that was my conversation with Dr. Rachel Bittacoffer from Christopher Newport university in Virginia, Newport news, Virginia, a lot to think about there, right? A lot to chew on. And you know, maybe my biggest takeaway from this is uh, we win when we fight and we are proud of who we are and we don't apologize for it. And we know we're the majority, that the majority of Americans agree with us on these issues. So it's ridiculous that we would lose any elections at this point, considering that our fellow Americans already agree with us on nearly every single issue. This is our this is our year to win and win big in the Senate, in the White House, in our state races. And the fact that that we possibly won't is just it's it should be incomprehensible. And uh, I hope I hope this has inspired you a little bit uh, listening to Dr. Bittacoffer. And um, I thank her for for being on Rumble with me. And I thank you for listening. And um, we'll talk to you soon. And I'm going to present a, a special episode of Rumble here in the next um, 24 to 36 hours about Michael Bloomberg and the fact that he's taken the stage because he bought his way on and went this coming Wednesday night onto the debate stage in Nevada. So I want to talk about Michael Bloomberg. Uh, I've known him for some time. And what I have to say uh, is... Um, going to be somewhat uncomfortable, uh, but it needs to be said, and the truth needs to be told. And I want you to know it. I want you to